So my guest today is uh, Jan Devish, and he has re recently written a book called Dynamic Collaboration, Strengthening Self-Organization and Collaborative Intelligence in Teams. Uh, he's a professor of human capital management in Belgium, and he's a consultant at Connect and Transform. Uh, so Jan, um, can you give me an outline of what, what your book's about and how you came to write this? Well, the... Uh... The start of my book, in fact, uh, was in my experience with teams in companies. I uh, went through many transition uh, trajectories uh, with my clients. And what I often saw was that uh, what we agreed upon was not implemented. And a lot of teams come back to uh, agreements uh, they often make with each other. I was very puzzled uh, and wondered how how did that come? And uh, well, I tried to find solutions in the competency mm -hmm. uh, in the competency domain by looking at, for example, how can we meet better? How can we uh, follow up on agreements? How can we better plan and organize? But for one reason or another, uh, priority management, uh, delegation planning and organization, all those competencies did not work very well. Mm -hmm. And when I met Otto Laske, with which I wrote the book in 2006, it's now about 12 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, well, he pointed to uh, another dimension, the fact that people differ in developmental level. And that means that they differ in the way they interpret uh, reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in that interpretation uh, is the seat for uh, either uh, an intelligent way of collaborating in which you follow up, in which you uh, contribute to something much more than yourself, which I call an upward dynamic, or in a downward dynamic, which means that you narrow challenges, you do not follow up on agreements, and you start questioning over and over again what has been discussed. So, uh, well, I was already pointed by some colleagues from the uh, Global Requisite Society to the fact that people differ developmentally, mm -hmm. but Requisite Society, for one reason or another, never apply that insight to the working of teams. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came to, uh, to write the book uh, is, well, what is really the essence in uh, creating collaborative intelligence and creating collaborative intelligence becomes more and more important in the industry 4.0 developments mm. uh, in which our world becomes more and more complex, ambiguous, uh, volatile, and so on. And so people really need to find a different way of collaborating. And yeah. so I started, uh, well, reflecting upon how can I uh, translate insights from uh, research uh, in the cognitive developmental field into organizations. And that was the start of the book. Very interesting. Um, one of the ways I, I uh, describe sort of the consulting uh, I do is that there's four quadrants so you can think uh, vertically that there's uh, the dimension between um, the individual and group 
and then horizontally it's internal and external. Yes. And so if you're looking at competence, which is the external of an individual, what are the skills that you're man manifesting? Um, and so you can look at running meetings better and, and doing things like that. That really what you're saying is you have to move to the internal developmental side of an individual. So what stage are they at developmentally in order to contribute to the book? And I think that's a very good distinction. That's correct. And that's uh, almost uh, everywhere absent in, uh, in approach to uh, change and transformation. Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the things that I, I quite liked was, because uh, I, I watched the webinar uh, on your book not too long ago, and you talked about the Industry 4.0 and uh, the need for responsiveness to change. And, and I thought the changes were quite, um, they, they resonated a lot with me in terms of, um, what I'm seeing, I, I finished an entrepreneurship degree at Ryerson not too long ago, uh, and I'm of a, a young generation, and th there's a lot of this that seems to be the new way of thinking. Um, so some of it is from uh, profit to purpose, from uh, hierarchy to networks, from controlling to empowering, from planning to experimentation, and from privacy to transparency. And I can say, you know, firsthand from design thinking to um, the general way you go about starting a business now that all of that makes a lot more sense and that if you're going to be um, working on projects in, in organizations now that there's a lot more project work as opposed to general um, repetitive nature of tasks. It's not standardized anymore. It's, you know, you have to, um, you have to learn what, what works as opposed to being told, here's what your job is that, um, a lot of like I, I think that really captures quite well the changes that organizations now have to face on how do you actually get those teams to function well yes that's correct and and what fascinates me is that very few individuals see what happens around them mm -hmm. they do have a, a clue uh, what is relevant in the context and they keep on uh, let's say believing in simplification, believing in one right solution, which is not there in the VUCA world we uh, live in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's a couple other, um, there's things that came to mind when I was looking at your description of Industry 4.0. And, you know, one of them for me is integration as a, a general trend. And so I, I look around, I mean, there's a uh, a company that's working in the uh, financial markets to try to do predictive analytics. And what seems to be their power um, is that they're able to bring in people from applied history, from economics, psychology, from all these different fields. And that to me points to the, the need for networks. Um, I work in a network of consultants. So we have different skills, different experiences and uh, approaches and we work together based on the problem. I mean, you look at IDEO in, in uh, California, they do innovative um, solutions, design thinking and, and stuff like that. And it's all of it seems to be moving away from not always top down, like you need a group of people together to get something done. And so that's correct. And, and you know, uh, they often say that teamwork is a real competitive advantage. But the question is, why doesn't it happen more? Yeah, uh, we all believe that teamwork is is crucial for success, but nevertheless, uh, it rarely happens. And that's the starting point of my book, yeah. uh, answering the question: Well, how can we let it happen? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Interesting. Um, and then there's another thing that I thought was interesting, which is when you're looking at the 
the uh, difference between controlling and empowering and that type of stuff, um, it looks to me like you need to separate out the idea of sort of a power hierarchy and the idea of something like a competence hierarchy or um, if there's going to be leaders at all in an organization, they need to be able to uh, not necessarily be there just because they have power or, or dominance in some way, but they're there because they're able to add context to the work or they're able to, um, to help lead the team in a, in a very particular way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, there are multiple dimensions as, uh, in being a leader. There is uh, the ability of, uh, well, uh, painting the bigger context and the emerging changes and the interdependencies and the potential tensions and uh, how those tensions uh, could be coordinated. That's what I call the cognitive uh, aspect and domain. Mm -hmm. But there is also the social emotional one, which uh, means from what uh, do I interpret reality from my own, from myself, or from the other perspective? And what in the other perspective do I take into account? Uh, am I seeing people as instrumental for my own, for my own needs, and so uh, acting a bit in a manipulative uh, way? Or am I really able uh, to act from a values perspective uh, or a purpose perspective, a perspective that transcends individual uh, differences? Yeah. And then talk about the social-emotional uh, maturity uh, phase in which a leader is authentic. Leadership is often described uh, from the social-emotional uh, perspective of having entered in the self-authoring phase. Yeah. And, you know, the essential finding is that very few leaders are aware in which phase of development, uh, from which phase of development they interpret reality. Yeah. And so they often operate at different wavelengths, which causes a lot of communication and dialogue problems. Yeah. Well, and, and you get to this... I think one of the central things, and it's the thing I've been thinking a lot about lately, is is the importance of dialogue, and that there's there's um you, you can't just say let's communicate better and try to learn specific communication skills. That there's a a deeper level of of awareness and understanding that needs to go into that. Yes, indeed, uh, it starts with an awareness of uh, where are you, how. Uh, uh, what's what's the foundation of your own interpretative scheme? But uh, it will always go over the building the awareness of how do uh, differences in developmental level play a role in how we work together as a team. You know, each team uh, is composed of people that are developmentally mixed. Uh, you have a higher and lower developed people in a team, and the definition of higher and lower depends a bit on what's the real team challenge, uh, what's the real uh, issue on hand in the team. If a team uh, operates uh, brilliantly in the continuous improvement domain, it will not necessarily function in the rethinking business model domain. Mm -hmm. So uh, how people influence each other and in what way the higher developed part of the team is able to uh, pull the lower developmental developed people uh, above their level 
is crucial and determines uh, real uh, team outcomes. It creates a kind of an upward or a downward dynamic. And that's the very new issue that we try to describe in our book. Yeah. Uh, I think nobody has described team functioning and team dynamics from uh, differences in developmental levels amongst the team members. Yeah. Can, can you give an example of um, one of each type, so one of a downward and upward team and sort of how that looks um, in person? Well, for example, a team we all know very well is focused on continuous improvement. Uh, in that team, uh, one is often uh, focused on uh, the improvement of sub-processes. And uh, what's characteristic in those teams is that they work with downloaded models, models provided by consultants, models they have read in books, models that are derived from best practices in other organizations. And often they miss to see how their own context is different from uh, the context in which the model has been uh, developed. Like for example, uh, a lean model does not apply to many continuous improvement contexts as it was developed in Toyota, for example. And what then happens is that there starts a discussion on that, that quickly degrades towards a right-wrong discussion or towards how can we simplify this further or can we agree on the definitions, please? So all the ambiguity is pushed out of the team, which is very characteristic for downwardly oriented teams. That means that the less developed people trying to uh, hostage the higher developed uh, ones, simplifying reality to such a level that it doesn't fit anymore to solve the problem and the issue. And the problem becomes even more complex in a second type of teams, which I call the uh, rethinking value stream uh, teams. That's a different team dialogue and what I call a different we space teams functioning in in uh, rethinking value streams uh, people from different uh, specializations or units come together for example logistics with clients teams with production teams with financial colleagues and so on and uh, what happens in those teams is that each team member has already gone through a process of optimizing and differentiation in his or her own environment. So the, uh, the power of the own logic is uh, so big that it becomes even more difficult to transcend the different perspectives and individual logics. So if in end-to-end -end value stream teams, one logic starts to become the dominant logic, for example, the customer intimacy approach from uh, the marketing and sales department, well, what you often see is that the other perspectives are pushed to the background, and at the end, you get a very inefficient and not working uh, throughput process in your organization, which is also a characteristic of the downwardly oriented teams in that environment. Mm -hmm. Upwardly divided team dynamics, 
will succeed in transcending those different perspectives. And you will need different thinking exercises uh, and introduce cognitive diversity in a different way. This can be done in, in uh, a wide variety of ways. For example, in uh, changing the feedback mechanisms so that, that one gets a real understanding of the perspective of the other. Mm -hmm. It can be done through thinking exercises. It can be done through uh, what I call uh, making explicit the job too we all have. And yes. starting to build a kind of a meta uh, vocabularium that enables a dialogue on giving feedback on how one works together. Mm -hmm. uh, even enabling feedback around uh, well, how one approaches issues, how one gets stuck in the own perspective, and the different biases that appear in teams. Yeah. And then you, uh, you're able to really build an upward dynamic in a team when you're able to do that. Yeah, there's a... That's what I'm saying. Yes, and, and there's a lot of thoughts that go through my head. Um, one of them, I mean, I, I can see a lot of Robert Keegan's work in here. Um, and one of the things I took from him, um, I think it was in an everyone culture, was um, when you're talking about the feedback mechanisms, I thought the fishbowl example was really interesting. And so it gets back to your whole idea of uh, when you're talking about the two jobs. So you have the job of, uh, you know, feedback and dialogue for are you doing your work properly? Is the work getting done? But then there's a whole other aspect of that, which is job two of making sure that you're developing your capability to, and so this, there's a, the social um, maturity level and there's the, I'd say the cognitive piece, but it's, it's a longer term developmental feedback. So it's not just, are you doing your job right? But how are you um, contributing to the team? How are you interpreting the world? Um, yeah. And that, you know, that I have a hypothesis I'd like to run by you. Uh, so I've been doing some work with uh, Nick Foster of One Degree Shift, uh, and we've been doing work on culture in organizations. And he uses um, Barrett's uh, value uh, hierarchy, which is a continuation of Maslow's uh, work. And it's been useful in, in changing cultures um, in our work. And one of the things that the hierarchy talks about is, is um, so it goes from you know survival upwards to eventually sort of continuous improvement transformation is sort of the middle and it goes up to making meaning and and eventually up to sort of service and i have a hypothesis that there's a lot of people and this is held up for the people i've asked in my generation uh, especially when i was at school of uh you know what what are you looking for what what do you what do you want in a job and it seems to me that there's a shift in what people find valuable. They're less likely to move away from friends and family to work. They're more likely to look for work that they're going to be um, better after they take, took the job or the project. So they're looking for that job to work of development. And so that fits in with the model you're, you're suggesting is how you might actually do that. Yeah, that's correct. And you know, the, uh, the, the problem is a bit that uh, many people wonder what kind of job fits their own profile. Yeah. But very few people are aware what their profile is and where, what they are becoming, in what 
process of development therein. Mm -hmm. And so they often choose jobs on the basis of uh, what they felt as being comfortable and good in the past. Yeah. But not the kind of job uh, that enables them really to grow and to uh, develop their full potential. That's a kind of a logic that uh, is yet to be discovered by a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And, and so if they uh, are hungry to develop job two, there is even there a risk that job two is uh, interpreted in a narrow way according to their own developmental level, according to what they already see yeah. or not see as being valuable for themselves. Yeah. Well, and um, I don't know if you ran across this, my grandfather uh, and my grandmother, uh, they, they wrote a book called Smart Creative. And part of the book, it was mostly based on the complexity component of Elliot Jack's work, which is different levels of complexity uh, of information processing. And when they looked at uh, Keegan's uh, maturity levels, they seemed that it mapped pretty well on that, in that when you move into a self-authoring phase that you're, you're able to, it looks like you're at serial. You're, you're no longer, if you use a subject-object distinction, um, you're sub subject at level, level two to either the processes that are already happening or if you're talking about uh, maturity level, you, you're subject to um, the sort of what the team's wanting to do. It's, it's all more on a continuous improvement level. But when you get to uh, three, you're able to make your own opinions of things. You're able to do sort of a root cause analysis. Um, and so I, I don't think it's that, uh, I, I think it's maybe necessary, but not sufficient in terms of having the cognitive development in order to do some of the social maturity development. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, in a lot of cases, they co-vary and they, they co-evolve, but not in all cases. For yes. example, uh, the United States has a president, which, uh, yeah. can perhaps be intelligent and function on, uh, a pretty high level but is social emotionally not developed at all yeah yeah uh, so they can co-vary but uh, you need to be able to make the distinction in order to study how they co-evolve and what happens when they do not co-evolve yeah uh, so late adult development is much more complex uh, than uh, looking at it from one dimension or one angle uh, you can look at it from the social-emotional uh, perspective. You can look at it from the cognitive perspective. But you can also look at it from, for example, the spiritual perspective. There are plenty of perspectives yep. which co-vary. And what is still unknown is how one dimension influences the development of the other dimension and vice versa. Mm -hmm. For example, in my experience, I have uh, seen that the cognitive development does not necessarily uh, push social emotional development and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we need models that enable us to look in a more uh, specific uh, way uh, at reality. Mm -hmm. For example, if you build leadership programs uh, and build a talent management system based on one dimension, whether it is the co only the uh, 
the social emotional dimension you miss big parts of uh, of the reality and you do not succeed in uh developing the full potential of people yeah yeah i agree with that i mean um in in my uh family's experience in consulting it's when we're looking at development it's uh, a combination of we've used the word maturity and i think that is social emotion we also use um, awareness of certain personality types so um the Enneagram habits of attention or um, Jungian stuff, but it's, there's, there's this whole dynamic of awareness of one's impact on other people and the way one is in the world. Um, and I think Keegan's stuff's quite good. I haven't got into it as much. Um, and we also use the cognitive and we look at skills, knowledge, experience as a, another piece, but it's, it's less, um, I think less salient on the overall development piece. It's more of a supporting role. Um, but, but the idea is that, you know, if, if you're strong in one and not strong in the others, you're going to run into trouble. So it's about trying to get them to grow uh, at a similar enough uh, level. There's indeed a, a challenge of getting the dimensions aligned. Uh, and what, what I would like to add to the previous uh, thought is that you, you, you made a reference to Elliot Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he talked about the cognitive, he mainly talked about uh, logical analytical thinking and systems thinking yeah. but he missed a bit the transformational thinking dimension which is uh, more dialectic uh, of nature and has been described only during the last 10 years in literature mm. so so even that dimension uh, becomes more and more rich uh, depending on the progress of uh, scientific research yeah, and I, I'm a little less familiar with exactly what you mean by the transformational, but from what I saw in your work so far, um, there was an aspect of it to me that if you're looking at Jack's stuff as um, the analytical is sort of at the concrete level, you know, level three, maybe a bit lower, uh, yeah. you get the system at four. But to me, the transformational stuff looked like um, six and up, where you're, you're having to deal with variables that aren't there or ambiguities that aren't there and you're able to manage that. In, in, but I don't, yeah, and it may, may be a fair criticism you didn't directly get into that, but I think from uh, at least my grandfather's experience with um, dealing with people at all these different levels is that generally when you get to the really high, high levels, the, um, there's that transformational element where they're looking at disturbances in context and process and, and relationships and stuff like that. Yes, that's true. And uh, uh, I, I, I do not doubt that a number of people at those higher levels uh, are aware of how they cope with reality that is not yet there. Transformational thinking uh, is about uh, how you deal with the, and how you anticipate this equilibrium and are able to uh, point to the potential of coordinating systems, mm-hmm. which uh, well has been pointed to by Elliot Jack, but has not been described by him. Yeah, yeah. at least not in the stuff that I have uh, read about him. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, there's another interesting piece. Um, I, w- I wonder what you think about this. Um, there's been research on the Flynn effect generally with IQ. And, and so it looks like the IQ is going up 
uh, about 3% a decade. And if you're able to um, sort of uh, map that onto the complexity of information processing piece, then it, what my grandfather called was, this was the, the talent upshift, where you're getting people who are coming out of school now a lot more at three, and they're going into a workforce for jobs at level two. And there's this big, um, and a part of the pain is that you, you don't have the language or the understanding to know why you're so frustrated at work. Mm -hmm. But to me, the, there's, uh, there's an opportunity here for a developmental organization to really attract talent by saying, look, we'll give you a very strong job too. And not just look at the cognitive piece, but we, we think that you have um, some of the social emotional aspects that um, we could help you along because you're more primed by being maybe at a higher cognitive level. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's correct. It's certainly a challenge for organizations to uh, review their uh, recruitment and selection processes, but it starts with how they conceive work and how uh, the relationships between roles are designed. Something most organizations are not uh, very good at. They look at work uh, in terms of individual uh, jobs, one besides one another. And they rarely ask the question uh, of the value add that needs to be uh, realized in jobs uh, and jobs in relationships with each other. So the, there is an absence of a systemic way of conceiving and designing jobs. And there the frustration of uh, a lot of uh, young people start because given the development your grandfather pointed to they quickly see that the system as a system does not work so companies need to uh, look for a different way of uh, designing roles and what i propose in my book is to uh, describe roles through story stories and use a kind of a story matching methodology by which i mean that you can describe roles in terms of their unique value add on uh, five dimensions the unique value add uh, in the domain of client and uh, stakeholders from this follows the unique uh, difference one needs to make in the innovation domain mm -hmm. uh, from that follows what kind of uh, resources you can liberate you can have or not have and from that follows the kind of planning and organization resulting in a number of outcomes uh, and uh, key indicators that need to be clear what i often see is that functions are described in terms of activities and lists of activities and that practice uh, well makes it difficult to uh, get roles aligned and uh, see uh, what kind of complexity handling is necessary from the individual so both companies there uh, miss the the methods uh, to innovate and individuals uh, uh, 
are not aware of the kind of story they want to make a difference in. And mm-hmm. storytelling uh, and the story matching methodology enables them to do so. It's uh, a methodology uh, developed in the IT domain, mm-hmm. uh, starting with user stories, and is now uh, quickly moving into the human capital domain. And it's one of the uh, entrance points to really review part of your human capital system in order to build a deliberate developmental organization. Mm-hmm. And, and can you give an example of, uh, of what a role would sound like then if, if you're using this new method? Well, uh, uh, I can give plenty of examples, but I'm... Uh, choosing one that enables you to to make the difference. For example, uh, if you have a a customer contact center uh, collaborator, uh, traditionally these are people uh, that need to answer calls for clients in a qualitative way. And they use scripts and procedures to do that. Uh, through uh, industry 4.0 developments, uh, 40 to 50% of their activity gets automated uh, and clients uh, are able to uh, find the answers on their questions and even book appointments through the e-applications and the apps they can find on their mobile uh, phones. So they only contact the contact center for more complex questions. Now the question raises, what is the key unique value of a contact center uh, colleague? It's not anymore uh, giving the most qualitative answer to the client. It becomes uh, starting to look into optimizing the set processes in order to get the more complex answers question, uh, the more complex questions answered. Uh, for that client and so the kind of innovation uh, in the past was innovating in uh, how do we address and ask questions for example to the client to clarify his or her issue but now it becomes uh, well looking into uh, how can we improve the front office process or the back office process which is a much more complex issue. So becoming clear about what kind of story is linked to that uh, role is uh, crucial to attract the right people. Mm. And then you can go further. Uh, What are the kind of resources that you have? And then you can come to the inside that in the new situation, uh, the resources are not within the authority of the contact center collaborator, but of a team lead. And so you need to delegate those resources in order to get a good decision making. Uh, And then there is the planning. Uh, The planning will be a planning uh, not on uh, coping with daily issues and getting all the calls handled, but it will be about planning how to handle the calls on a daily basis, plus uh, balancing with the time needed to review certain key processes. Yeah, I mean, this sounds to me um, 
uh, at least this specific example is is a raising of complexity of the work itself but then um what you're doing with the method is explaining that to people so that it becomes a more appealing piece you can explain that to people and you can use the stories usually a story has uh, about 10 sentences not more you can use those stories uh through social media and people connect with the stories that uh, describe the complexity they can handle and they do not connect with stories which are either too simple or too complex so you have a kind of a self-selection mechanism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well speeds up the quality of your selection yeah yeah that does i mean a lot of the experience i've had at least working with the the complexity stuff is um, there's often a natural, um, I don't know if it's an intuition, but, but people generally are able to, to, when you give words to what they're trying, what, if you give words to describing the complexity issues, they say, yeah, I, I, I knew that I, I couldn't say it. But a lot of the times people self-select into the right roles or understand when there's a manager that's not at a, a high enough level to give them context, but not a too high level to, um, um, sort of lose them in the clouds. Um, and so I can see the, the new way of describing the roles. I mean, from, from my experience looking at organizations is there's a lot of, they talk about the tasks you're doing, but it, it's sometimes hard to read in what you actually do on the job. And, and through the story method, uh, it, it, it to me seems to communicate much more clearly what, what the complexity is. Yes, indeed. And, and for example, if you're clear towards that uh, customer contact center uh, team member, that the outcome that he needs to realize is uh, the increase of the conversion ratio, which is the number of uh, calls uh, which are, well, are trend, uh, which, which you uh, succeed in getting into a contract, uh, and to an invoicing, well, you open a whole space of initiative and engagement for that person. Yeah. And through integrating that in the storyline, well, it becomes much more clearer what the challenge is and uh, what the, well, how that role creates a meaningful difference. Yeah. And that's really what uh, engages people. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a lot of my peers when they left uh, the entrepreneurship program, there's a lot of them that went into, I mean, there's Uber Eats and, and other companies around, but you know, they go in and it's getting chewed out and not necessarily seeing a direct impact. Most of them are handling sales calls or, or some sort of customer success yeah. management roles. Um, but it's quite disengaging and they're not uh, given the, um, resources and complexity and narrative of what they could be doing that would actually maybe match what they could do and, and be much more fulfilling. Yeah, that's true. And once uh, roles are clear and the role role relationships are clear, but then job two becomes much more easier to develop too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's another aspect I'd bring into this of um, one of the hypotheses that um, my grandparents and I have, have talked about in terms of uh, managing the talent upshift is uh, sort of a mode peer group. And so the idea mode is um, 
the estimate of where you're the probabilistic estimate of where you're going to come out on complexity uh, by the age of 70 is, is the measure. But if you can uh, put people who are maybe at different levels right now and, but are on the sort of same path that that really uh, there's a connection that happens so they can understand each other, even if they're not operating at the same level. And it's been my experience that the people who are uh, farther along do a great job at, at helping the, um, the more junior person develop both on the maturity level and on the, the complexity level. And so the idea of having mechanisms and clear rules, all that, but mechanisms for um, developing strong teams that you can do this across different levels of development. And if you can get that right, that there's a, a great chance of much more engagement from people who, you know, are coming in with uh, a high cognitive capacity, but don't have the knowledge, skills and experience or necessarily the maturity to do the work right away. Well, uh, I can see that, but there is one big but. Uh, it's not always the case. It doesn't always happen. Uh, what happens if uh, somebody is on an intellectual growth path, but the social-emotional uh, dimension doesn't follow? So uh, it will create a downward spiral in such a mode group, and learning will not happen. Yeah. What you are describing is the dynamic happening in an upward group. Mm -hmm. My experience learns, my experience in uh, top leadership development uh, teaches me that it only happens in about 30, 35% of the groups. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is still an, uh, a big unknown area of uh, not simultaneous development of the different developmental dimensions through which one's inter interpretation of reality changes and uh, the assumption that you're making is that the ones that are higher developed succeed in pulling the, the lower developed uh, colleagues along with them up in an upward spiral which is uh, well often uh, an idealistic uh, view of what really happens yeah, I, I can see, I, I, I guess I'm speaking from my experience and I happen to be fortunate enough to be around uh, people who look like they're much more in the upward uh, divided team dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, but w would you say you've been in, in applying the um, mechanisms that you're using, are, are, what's your like success rate at moving people from sort of one type of team to the other? Have you been, been able to track that? Well, um, I've been uh, working with this since 2004 and most of uh, my client trajectories uh, last uh, between two and four years that I can follow up development mm -hmm. of people. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm also working with my students on uh, really following up how uh, senior managers develop. Uh, I'm teaching in the MBA program and the average age of uh, my students is between 30 and 40 and they often are already member of a management team and in a kind of a development path towards uh, CEO-ship. Yeah. Uh, what I see is that uh, uh, in contexts where there is no support available uh, six out of seven do not succeed. Uh, 
nevertheless, uh, uh, they, uh, they have the individual resources to invest in their own development. When you uh, look at companies uh, providing this, the enabling environment and even giving individuals uh, budgets, uh, I see quite a difference uh, where companies invest in what I label as the vertical dimension, which is also supporting uh, dialogue on uh, the cognitive, the social, emotional, and even the spiritual uh, dimension versus companies who have a more unidimensional skills and competency approach yeah. in the latter. Six out of seven uh, leaders really do not make it. And in the first context, uh, well, you see the number of failures decreasing by about 20, 25%, but still a lot of people do not make it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what, uh, what explains that for me is that there is still uh, uh, a focus on uh, systemic and logical analytical thinking. Uh, the dialectical thinking and the real transformational thinking dimension has not yet been discovered in uh, a lot of companies. And by transformational thinking, I mean creating awareness on the kind of thinking structures that one uses to make sense of absences, the absence of information, but also the absence of context and the layers in, in the context, or the absence of uh, insight in trends and emerging changes, uh, how patterns of evolutions co-evolve or do not co-evolve, uh, an absence of seeing real interrelationships and non-linearity in uh, things that happen. So complexity theory focuses the attention on uh, sub thinking structures and a lot of those structures are experienced in companies as being too abstract and not uh, being simple enough to cope with their reality and that's a kind of a well, vicious circle by pushing away complexity they do not succeed in developing leaders that can handle the uh, evolving higher complexity out there Mm -hmm. and and so how would uh somebody like how would an organization um start to uh take into account much more of the transformational thinking what would be their their steps to do that well um, i'm working on three dimensions simultaneously and i call it a kind of a choreography uh, approach. Uh, uh, companies need to think more in terms of uh, iterative processes, uh, processes influencing one another, and that you cannot plan uh, transformational change, but you can uh, uh, stand still and go slower in order to go faster. Yeah. 
so what I'm often including in my approach are thinking experiments uh, uh, and design thinking uh, provided the basis to do that. Uh, they, they created a kind of a ground floor to uh, quickly check whether something can work out or not, whether an ID could be viable or not. Well, I'm not uh, approaching design thinking from a content point of view uh, in terms of looking what could work, but I'm using design thinking experiments to, to invite people to start thinking on how they made sense about that experiment, how they engaged in different hypotheses simultaneously, how much context they took into account, how they made sense of uh, different processes, emergence, uh, co-evolvement, uh, co-dependence, how they made sense of interdependencies, past path dependence, uh, and so on. So I'm a bit using the thinking experiments uh, to help them both improve the quality of thinking of the issues they attack same time improving uh, their own thinking process and the quality of dialogue and it's through letting them experience that a different quality of dialogue is uh, well has much more impact uh, that you can develop one's thinking and invite somebody to start thinking when he or she is in the car, for example, about his or her own thinking processes. Mm -hmm. When you succeed in doing that, you have made a huge step forward in the development. Because it's, my, my parents always said to me, uh, they have a small company, and they said, Jan, uh, don't you see the work out there? I had to work very young. Uh, well, it's a question of starting to see how you think and that will enable you to develop a different range, a different set of competencies too. Yeah. You will then become much more successful as a leader or as an entrepreneur. So um, is your approach generally to go in um, with your client organization and facilitate um, these exercises uh, basically to get awareness around the types of processes that are going on and, and try to um, sort of kick them into a developmental step. Um, and then like, how does that look? Do you do that for um, a couple of times with a group or, or and, and what's your duration for that? Uh, the, the entrance point is uh, mostly uh, a business need. Uh, a business need, need and an evolving business model. So the top uh, is aware that how they operate, that they won't be able uh, to continue doing things as they always did. Yeah. And there is already an awareness that in order to implement the new strategy, uh, they will need a different structural setup. And that creates the ground uh, to start questioning uh, how teams 
could be composed and what kind of uh, redesign in roles are necessary. Once the redesign of roles uh, starts, one uh, becomes conscious about new types of uh, meeting structures, governance structures, and it is in that context that I introduced the thinking experiments. Mm. So I uh, never come in with a toolkit and yeah. uh, say, well, you need to, you have these projects running. Well, uh, I can help you to, uh, to improve the quality of thinking of what you are already doing. Because in that kind of situation, I uh, risk a lot of being thrown out. Who am I to start saying that uh, the quality of dialogue is not fit for purpose? No, it starts on a higher level, the awareness of uh, a need to transform the business mm. and that a kind of a, a company-wide transformation process is necessary and that the quality of dialogue will be a crucial ingredient mm. to do that. And the quality of dialogue is, can only be changed when you start changing, uh, let's say, the purpose of jobs and roles. Uh, when you are able to engage people in a reflection process on how they will need to collaborate in a more intelligent way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Does that resonate? Yeah, yeah, a lot. I mean, uh, most of the consulting jobs I've, I've been involved on are similar in that they start from some sort of specific pain point around transformation or um, trying to grapple with uh, a industry 4.0 is, is mostly what's happening. And, and then we, we have various different, um, some of it's role for clarification, some of it's um, uh, cultural surveys and workshops to figure out what the transformation needs to work look like before then we move into how the solution might be. Like there's a lot of the problem uh, finding activities before you you end up doing the solution. You don't come in with the solution. No, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a bit about, you, you ha had a piece on collaborative intelligence and, and sort of the four ingredients that you, you have. Can you talk about that for a bit? Well, the essential insight there is that uh, in each team, you have the development of trust. There is an issue of mobilization of uh, resources and, and initiative and there is an issue of coordination and trust uh, co-mobilization and coordination are determined by the developmental differences in in the network or in the teams you're in that means you only trust people who uh, are on an equal developmental level uh, and you have distrust in people that are uh, too far away from your own developmental level. Uh, and you will only uh, commit to organized action if you have a feeling that at least a certain percentage of your colleagues is also willing to step in the change process. And that 
uh, assessment or that evaluation depends on the developmental phase you're in uh, too. Hmm. Uh, so creating an awareness of developmental differences is very crucial. In fact, uh, you could even argue that one is able to uh, mobilize large groups of people uh, when they share the same developmental level. And if you look at uh, social media and how groups are formed on social media, you often see that uh, Facebook and, and many other uh, network uh, platforms uh, that people organize themselves around people who share the same uh, way of interpretation of reality. Uh, and that's how, well, uh, social dynamics uh, evolve. And it also explains why social change is so difficult. Mm -hmm. If you have addressed certain social groups in, for example, an election uh, procedure by very simple language, well, you need to uh, continue to use that simple language uh, in order to uh, ensure yourself of their commitment, their lasting commitment. And so it's very difficult to, well, to get things uh, changed. Mm -hmm. Does yeah. that resonate? Yeah, yeah, that does. Um, what do you, so when you're, um, if you're either a business leader or if, if you're going in as a, a helping hand, a consultant, what, what, what's your mechanism for um, identifying the levels of maturity that people are operating at? Is it possible for a business leader to pick up those skills? It is. Uh, and, uh, well, I'm, I'm giving them a simple trick uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what I advise them to do is uh, start talking about uh, an issue that is very relevant to their partner, to the one they want to assess, mm -hmm. and uh, follow a kind of a three-step approach uh, in terms of, well, for example, if you start talking about what does success mean for you or what does taking a stance mean for you or what does risk-taking mean for you. So you select a team uh, and you simply start the dialogue asking, what does that mean for you? Uh, and then can you give me an example? And when the example is given, then there are two more steps uh, to go. The first one is, uh, well, uh, what made it so important for you now to uh, come to that result? Mm -hmm. And the last step is then asking the question, and for whom was that now a success or not? And depending on that answer, they can answer, well, it was a success for my client or for uh, my lobby group or for my uh, uh, employees. So they, you, you will quickly sense whether they find it important 
to comply with somebody else or a group or whether it follows an own conviction system. Uh, and when you're then aware of the big phases of development from instrumental, which means uh, that you see others as an instrument uh, to fulfill your own needs uh, or other dependent, which means that basically you want to get the respect of others towards uh, self-altering, which means that you're operating from your own vision yeah. uh, towards self-aware, which means that you start to see others as uh, in a very humble way as uh, those who can help in your own development. Uh, so there is always a shift from me to the other. And depending on the kind of tension or conflict the other has uh, woven into the story that he or she shares, you can quickly pinpoint the correct developmental maturity level of somebody. Mm, good. Yeah, and, and in your experience, that, um, that that's easy enough to pick up um, as a leader. Um, like when you're, when you're walking people through this, they'll go uh, and be able to do that on other people after you're gone? Well, uh, often when I see students uh, back after uh, five, six years and I ask them, what is it that you have taken with you and that you still apply? <laughs> They often uh, make reference to their insight in uh, how people develop uh, in the social emotional domain and in the cognitive domain. That's something they often always started working with mm -hmm. and uh, help them to, uh, to improve their own team dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what would be your um, sort of one takeaway you'd want a leader uh, of a business today to, to take away from this conversation and your book? What's your central point? Well, the central point is you can only build great teams if you are aware of developmental differences in teams and if you're able to influence them through introducing either cognitive diversity and or start working and uh, sharing developmental phases, uh, social-emotional. Good. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, if people want to learn more about this, uh, I believe your book's on your website at uh, connecttransform.be. That's and, correct. And uh, is there any, anything else you'd like uh, to plug here where they can find out more about what you're up to? Well, um, uh... There is also a masterclass that I'm organizing and that can be uh, uh, adapted to specific needs of companies. Also the content of that masterclass, which goes through the essentials of dynamic collaboration is available on my website.